0: Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. In 1729, in his first published statement on the sexes of plants, Linnaeus wrote that the ancient botanists appeared to be fumbling in dense darkness when they looked for the sex of plants. He says, it's enough to make us shudder when we see how mistaken they were when they tried to distinguish male and female trees according to things like the thickness of the bark. However, modern botanists, by which he meant those of the 17th century and after, are enlightened. Pursuing analogies between animals and plants, they finally understood that they must look for the organs of generation in plants corresponding to those in animals. Having realised that the stamens were the male organ and the pistil the female, Linnaeus says that no one can any longer reasonably deny the existence of sex in plants. In other words, by 1729 it was obvious to Linnaeus that plants were sexed, and nobody can deny what is obvious, can they?
1: Today of course all plant scientists and gardeners agree that plants are sexed, and thus they reproduce sexually as well as asexually. So. Why did it take until the late 17th century to discover this? Why did it take so long for something so obvious to become, well, obvious?
0: I'm Stella Sandford, professor in the Centre for Research in Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University. In this podcast, I'm going to look a little into the history of the knowledge of plant sex to try to answer these questions, to see if things really were as obvious as Linnaeus suggested, and also to ask, is it obvious that what is obvious is always true. But to begin, what was the darkness that, according to Linnaeus, shrouded the attempts of the ancient botanists when it came to plant sex? Historians of science have already answered to this question. It was philosophy. More specifically, it was Aristotle's philosophy. In botany, right up until the 17th century, Questions about the nature of plants were still being asked in explicitly Aristotelian terms, and this constrained the kind of answers that could be given. Aristotle thought that plants were alive because they grow and reproduce, and so he thought that they must at least share with animals that kind of soul, the so-called vegetative soul, that is responsible for these functions. This kind of soul is really the basic principle of life for Aristotle. If plants and animals both have this kind of soul then what is true of animal generation must also be true of plant generation. Aristotle says that in animal generation the male principle imparts movement to the female material principle which is as much to say that the male imparts life. This is true of all living things for Aristotle so it must in some sense also be true of plants.
1: What does he mean by male and female
0: principles? These principles are a different kind of thing from the male and female individuals in whom the principles may be embodied. They are not physical entities, but something like vital powers. In plants, these male and female principles are mingled in the same individual, but in animals, they are separated in different individuals. So although it may not look like plants have male and female, may not be obvious when we think of male and female in terms of principles or vital powers we can say or so aristotle's interpreters thought that they do have sexes in this sense this means that when ancient and early modern thinkers asked do plants have male and female the answer was often well it depends what you mean by male and female If by male and female, you mean vital principles, then yes, plants have male and female. But if by male and female, you mean separate bodies with different organs, then the answer is no. We are now inclined to dismiss the idea of male and female principles or powers as the kind of empty philosophical speculation that would in the fullness of time be replaced with proper scientific observation and experiment. But granted that Aristotle didn't get it right, was his procedure really so unscientific? Aristotle compared different kinds of male and female animals with each other and noted the similarities in their internal and external genitals. He didn't see anything like this in plants, and to be fair, nor do most people today. Although it is now taken to be scientific truth that plants are sexed, it isn't really true to say that this is obvious to the untutored eye. Aristotle and his contemporaries saw that individual animals were either male or female and that both were involved in reproduction. They perhaps extrapolated from this that male and female in general were necessary for reproduction and thus that there must in some sense be male and female in plants even if there were not obvious male and female individuals, they hypothesized then that there must be male and female principles of life and that these are distributed across individuals in animals, but not in plants.
1: But who would say that the hypotheses of contemporary sciences are obvious? For sure, we can't see male and female principles and perhaps positing them even conflicts with what we think we can see. But isn't most contemporary science like that? Doesn't all science posit new kinds of non-obvious, counterintuitive things and processes to explain what we can see in a new way?
0: That's right. But the difference is that hypotheses in the contemporary sciences must be testable. And this new demand, along with the new technology of the microscope, played its part in what historians now think of as the real discovery of plant sex. Microscopic inspection of the parts of plants became possible and botanists, notably Nehemiah Grew in England, started to think about the role of the stamens and the pollen in different ways. Scientific conjectures about the role of pollen were tested experimentally, often by removing the anthers. And by 1694, thanks to the German botanist known as Camerarius, the idea of plant sex was becoming a literal reality. It is often said then, that the new emphasis on microscopic observation and experiment, what would come to be thought of as scientific method itself, supplanted the philosophical speculation of the earlier botanical tradition. It's often said that only when the speculative philosophy that was clouding the vision of botanists had been removed, could Camerarius and his successors clearly see the obvious truth that plants are sexed. Only then in fact, could it be obvious.
1: So, Progress in the theory of plant sex was dependent on its liberation from philosophy.
0: Well, this isn't quite the whole story. Camerarius and others after him, including Linnaeus, understood their discoveries in terms of a growing recognition that reproduction in plants was essentially the same as reproduction in animals. But little was actually known about animal reproduction at that time beyond the bare fact that it requires both a male and a female. Because the breakthrough in understanding plant sex was the recognition of the fertilising role of the pollen, we might think that it was Leeuwenhoek's discovery of the spermatozoa in the 1670s that was decisive. But the early major proponents of the idea of plant sex, including Linnaeus, were initially sceptical of Leeuwenhoek's claims because he took his discovery to be proof of the spermaticist version of preformation theory. That is, he thought that he could see in each spermatozoon all the main parts of the future animal in miniature. The only function of the female in generation would then be to receive and nourish this tiny proto-animal in the male seed. Linnaeus inclined at first to the other side of this debate. He quotes William Harvey's famous slogan, Omnia ex ovo, everything comes from the egg. And he interprets this phrase, as Harvey himself did not, to mean that in plants, the seeds correspond to the ova in animals, since Linnaeus says they contain the whole rudiments of the future plant before fertilisation. But in that case, what role was there for the male to play? What role was there for the pollen? In 1729, Linnaeus could only say that the begetting power of the male gives life to the female ovum, even though it can't be demonstrated precisely how that happens. Sebastian de Vaillant, from whom Linnaeus first learned about the idea of the sex of plants, said much the same thing in 1717. He claimed that the material substance of semen or pollen was only the vehicle for the vapor or volatile spirit that actually fertilized the egg. Nehemiah Grew also held this essentially Aristotelian view at that time.
1: So, the pioneers in the theory of plant sex hadn't entirely eschewed philosophy in favour of observation and experiment?
0: No. In fact, we could even say that they made progress because they doggedly pursued Aristotle's counterintuitive idea that there must be male and female implants and that the male must be the enlivening principle even though there are not obvious male and female individuals. Some of them, notably Camerarius and Linnaeus in his later work, frankly admitted that no one had much of a clue about how fertilisation in animals or plants worked. They were convinced that the pollen performed what they call the male office or performed the male task, but they had little more idea of what that really was than did their ancient counterparts. Perhaps then we can say That it was becoming obvious that what they called the male and female parts of flowering plants were both necessary for fertilisation. But it's probably fair to say that nothing in the further development of the understanding of sexual reproduction in plants or animals is obvious, in the sense that it is something that an untutored eye readily perceives. Today the scientific definition of male and female is very remote from our everyday, primarily morphological idea of what it is to be male and female. Both animal and plant sexes are defined scientifically as organisms capable of producing differently sized gametes. A sexed part of an organism is that part capable of producing the gamete. Accordingly, it's not strictly speaking true that the stamen is the male part of the flower, as Linnaeus thought it so obviously was, because in the life cycle of the plant, the stamen belongs to the sporophyte that produces pollen, not the gametophyte that produces the gamete. It seems then that when it comes to identifying the male and female parts of plants, we still have to ask, like our ancient predecessors, well, it depends what you mean by male and female, and the answer may well not be obvious. Indeed, scientific progress depends on moving beyond what is obvious. The obvious truths of previous generations can become unquestioned assumptions based on traditional interpretations of gross generalisations. The remnants of what was obviously true can start to look like obstacles to greater understanding, as the etymology of the word indeed suggests, ob-viam, something in the way. The conclusion this leads me to is this, there are a lot of things that we think are obvious about sex. History teaches us that we are probably wrong.